You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Since last I wrote, I have been on another tour of picket duty in the city of Fredericksburg. This time I had the extreme outpost. My line of pickets ran immediately along the south bank of the river, the enemies immediately along the opposite bank. There we stood, eyeing each other, but nothing more. No firing at or conversation between the pickets are allowed. There's often endeavor to betray or provoke some of ours into a conversation, but I believe seldom succeed. It is a wise regulation, for many reasons, that our men are not allowed to talk with them. They deserve, except in official intercourse, to be treated with the greatest contempt. Colonel James D. Nance, 3rd South Carolina Infantry, Kershaw's Brigade. The river here was full of rocks and fordable. The pickets were stationed upon the hills overlooking the river, and in spite of orders to the contrary, we used to frequently pass our pickets, descend to the water's edge, and signal to the rebels opposite, who, if I recollect rightly, belonged to the 4th Georgia and 8th Alabama regiments. Upon seeing our signals, they would prepare at once for business by loading themselves with cloth haversacks of tobacco, and holding them above their heads, plunge into the icy cold water and make their way across to our side, sometimes passing from rock to rock, and sometimes up to their breasts in water. Two generally came over at a time, and as soon as they arrived, barter would commence, and in a few minutes the tobacco would be exchanged for overcoats, shoes, blankets, coffee, and sugar, or any of the numerous articles plentiful with us, but scarce with them. When they would at once return, both parties being satisfied with their bargains. I once asked one of these rebel traders if they wore the overcoats which they were always anxious to purchase. He replied, No, indeed, they were too fine for them to wear, that they sold readily in Richmond to civilians for $100 each. Private Eugene A. Corey, 4th New York Infantry, Andrews Brigade Hey everyone, welcome to the 230th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, thanks for tuning in to the podcast. 
As y'all recall, when we left off last time, a major wrench had been thrown into Ambrose Burnside's plans for his winter campaign when the pontoons he needed in order to build temporary bridges across the Rappahannock were late in arriving at the river. When Burnside's troops first arrived opposite Fredericksburg on November 17, 1862, only about 1,000 rebels blocked the road south. But by the time the pontoons finally arrived on November 25th, Robert E. Lee had caught on to what was happening and began assembling over 75,000 men along the Rappahannock to confront the Federals. The pontoons arrived eight days too late for Burnside. They had been a key piece of his plan to quickly cross the Rappahannock and strike swiftly for Richmond, but the missing pontoons had doomed his attempt at speed and surprise. As Burnside pondered his next move, Federal and Confederate soldiers settled into a comfortable routine of picket duty along the river's edge. Although fraternization with the enemy was officially forbidden, the riverbank nevertheless became a popular spot for the illicit exchange of items, with the most popular being tobacco and coffee. The Rappahannock presented no obstacle to these determined and resourceful traders. At one spot, near a burned-out bridge, a wire was rigged across the river and men pulled items of exchange back and forth on a trolley. And at that fort above Falmouth, mentioned in the quote at the top of the show, Confederates waded through the icy water to swap items with the Yankee soldiers. And most stories of Fredericksburg mention the miniature trading fleet of small rafts and little makeshift sailboats that plied the waters of the Rappahannock, bearing goods from one side to the other. More often than not, the rebels would christen their vessels Virginia after the ironclad, and just as often on its return voyage, it would be relabeled Monitor. A Confederate soldier in the 18th Mississippi later recalled, quote, It was a strange sight to watch the men of the opposing armies playing and trafficking as if there was no war, but they were ready to face each other at any minute and fight like lions and tigers if the orders were given. The original plan for the campaign may have been ruined by the belated arrival of the pontoons, but Abraham Lincoln still had a lot riding on what the Army of the Potomac did next. So with the army seemingly stalled along the Rappahannock, the president decided to make a brief trip from Washington to consult with Burnside. The two met on board a steamer anchored in the middle of Aquia Creek on the evening of November 26th, and then spent the next morning discussing the situation. Little seems to have been decided at the meeting, and although Lincoln supposedly assured his general that the country could wait until Burnside was ready to continue his campaign, there's little doubt that the meeting with the president only increased the pressure from above that Burnside felt, pressure to launch an attack on the enemy sooner rather than later. At some point in the meeting with Burnside, Lincoln apparently expressed his preference for turning Lee's right below Fredericksburg with a force of 25,000 men and perhaps even landing an additional detachment on the Pamunkey River closer to Richmond. The main army could then cross the Rappahannock while the two smaller forces prevented Lee from retreating into the defensive works that protected Richmond. 
but both Halleck and Burnside objected that such maneuvering would take too much time, so the proposal was dropped. Burnside, though, did think a flanking maneuver might be a good idea. That is, stealing a march on Lee again and crossing the whole army at a point downstream from Fredericksburg. So, to that end, he had cavalry patrols and engineers inspecting Skinker's Neck, a massive bend in the Rappahannock, about 12 miles below Fredericksburg. But when four U.S. Navy gunboats of the Potomac Flotilla ventured up the Rappahannock on December 4th to support the possible crossing of the army at Skinker's Neck, the vessels were taken under fire at several points by Confederate artillery batteries positioned along the river, until finally the gunboats turned back without ever reaching their destination. The rebel cannon that had shelled the Union gunboats and driven them away were from Jeb Stewart's horse artillery and from Stonewall Jackson's command. Jackson's hard-marching troops had started to tramp into Fredericksburg on December 1st. With Stonewall's arrival from the Shenandoah Valley, Lee's army was reunited, and the Confederate commander used Jackson's men to extend his line south along the Rappahannock. There was only about a 32-mile stretch of river where the Federals could realistically cross the Rappahannock, and now, by the first days of December, Lee had all of those 30 or so miles covered by Longstreet's and Jackson's men. This, of course, was bad news for Ambrose Burnside. The discovery that Lee had covered the crossing points downriver and therefore blocked any Federal attempt to turn the rebel right meant that a surprise crossing at Skinker's Neck was out of the question. With Plan A, his original scheme, and Plan B, this latest idea, having both come to nothing, Burnside now came up with Plan C. Assuming that the opposition the Union gunboats had faced downriver meant that a significant portion of the Confederate Army had been deployed in that direction, Burnside supposed that meant that Lee must be weak somewhere else, and the Federal commander thought that that somewhere was at Fredericksburg. Thinking that Lee must have weakened his line at Fredericksburg in order to spread troops along the river and cover that 30-some mile stretch of the Rappahannock, Burnside decided to use the pontoon bridges to cross right at Fredericksburg after all. Explaining his line of reasoning to Halleck after the battle, Burnside said he believed the enemy, quote, did not anticipate the crossing of our whole force at Fredericksburg, and I hoped, by rapidly throwing the whole command over at that place, to separate, by a vigorous attack, the forces of the enemy on the river below from the forces behind and on the crests in the rear of town. End quote. Burnside met with his Grand Division commanders at noon on December 9th to lay out his plan for crossing the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg. Engineers had selected, and Burnside had approved, three crossing points directly opposite and just below the town to build their pontoon bridges. The spots were designated the upper, middle, and lower crossing points. Burnside planned to have the Army engineers quickly throw up their bridges, then have troops rush across them and swiftly defeat the rebels holding the high ground behind Fredericksburg before Lee could react. 
Sumner's Grand Division would cross at Fredericksburg using the upper and middle bridges, while Franklin's Grand Division would use the lower crossing point just south of Fredericksburg. Hooker's Grand Division would act as a general reserve to reinforce Sumner and or Franklin as circumstances dictated. After the meeting broke up, Sumner, Franklin, and Hooker went back to their respective headquarters to disseminate the battle plan to their senior officers. But it soon became clear that Burnside's subordinate commanders weren't at all confident the plan would be successful. Major General Darius Couch, commanding the 2nd Corps in Sumner's Right Grand Division, later said, quote, There were not two opinions among the subordinate officers as to the rashness of the undertaking. Catching wind of this grumbling, Burnside convened another meeting later that afternoon of the general officers of the Army and key staff officers. Brigadier General Oliver Otis Howard, commanding a division in the 2nd Corps, remembered a frustrated Burnside's reply to those skeptical of his plan. According to Howard, Burnside told them, quote, I have heard your criticisms, gentlemen, and complaints. You know how reluctantly I assumed the responsibility of command. I was conscious of what I lacked, but I still have been placed here where I am and will do my best. I rely on God for wisdom and strength. Your duty is not to throw cold water, but aid me loyally with your advice and service. Okay, so after that little pep talk, the officers went back to their various commands, but Burnside's logic, as his subordinate commanders had realized, was seriously flawed. Lee might not have anticipated the main federal attack would fall at Fredericksburg, but it was unnecessary for him to do so, because the position Lee occupied on the high ground behind the town was one of the most formidable that he and the Army of Northern Virginia would ever hold. Lee had distributed his forces intelligently, taking great care to provide for rapid lateral movement to counter any maneuver Burnside might undertake. In addition, Lee would not be surprised, since the Federals would have to build their pontoon bridges in full view of the Confederates, then cross at those specific points, and then battle rebel skirmishers in the streets of Fredericksburg and on the plain south of t town, all before they could even approach the main Confederate defensive line. At best, the preliminary movements would take several hours, and more likely, an entire day. Besides the rebel troops at Fredericksburg and in the immediate vicinity, Burnside was aware that Lee had several divisions within easy marching distance of the town, but this knowledge left him undeterred. I expect to cross and occupy the hills before Lee can bring anything serious to meet me, he declared. And so the attack was set for the morning of Thursday, December 11th. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? 
Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast, where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast, wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. The object of all this maneuvering, the town of Fredericksburg, was located at the falls of the Rappahannock River. It was established in 1728 and named for Frederick, Prince of Wales, the eldest son of King George II and father of King George III. The town's oldest streets still bear the names of members of the British royal family. Until the 19th century, Fredericksburg would serve as an important early commercial and trading center and was the farthest point inland that ocean-going vessels could reach in colonial Virginia. The town had a storied history, being a profitable tobacco center in its early days, and one-time home to the likes of George Washington, James Madison, and John Paul Jones. As the tobacco trade declined, however, and as the early decades of the 19th century progressed, Fredericksburg fell behind in commercial importance to other Virginia locales. But economic revitalization came on the eve of the Civil War through the building of a dam and alterations to an existing canal. These improvements supported agricultural production, especially of grain staples, and led to the construction of several mills and factories. In his book, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, George Rabel writes, quote, On the eve of the war, the town had 5,023 inhabitants, nearly one-third of whom were either slaves or free persons of color. The other two-thirds, the white citizens, although lukewarm secessionists, generally adhered to the Confederate cause. Alternately occupied by both sides in recent months, Fredericksburg braced itself as the contending army showed up once again on its doorstep. If we backtrack to November 21st, that was one day after Longstreet's Confederates had started to arrive on the scene, but neither army occupied Fredericksburg itself. Burnside, without his pontoons at that time, lacked the means to cross the river and Longstreet, rather than occupy the town itself along the river bank, had started to stake out a defensive line along the hills behind Fredericksburg. Anyway, on November 21st, while he was stalled waiting for the pontoons, but before Confederate strength at Fredericksburg really started to ramp up, Burnside decided to demand the town's surrender. The letter making this demand along with a threat to shell the town if it didn't surrender, went first to Mayor Montgomery Slaughter and the Fredericksburg Common Council, and then to Robert E. Lee, who had arrived just the day before to join Longstreet. Upon reading the Federal's letter, Lee dispatched two officers to meet with the mayor and the city council and assure them that he, quote, would not occupy or use the city for military purposes, but would resist its occupation by the enemy, end quote. 
The next day, after Mayor Slaughter and a delegation of Confederate officers met with the Army of the Potomac's Provost Marshal, Brigadier General Marcena Patrick, and communicated Lee's stance to him, it was decided that Fredericksburg wouldn't be shelled as long as the residents didn't consent to Confederate forces using their town to shell Federal forces first. This tenuous arrangement notwithstanding, many of Fredericksburg's residents in the days that followed took the opportunity to flee the town. Residents with the means to do so took the railroad south to Richmond. One such trainload of refugees was mistakenly fired upon by Union artillery across the river. Luckily for the passengers, the shell missed its intended target and the firing ceased, with apologies from federal military authorities. Other residents, those who couldn't afford to stay in Richmond or who didn't have relatives elsewhere to stay with, sought refuge in the immediate countryside, where they were either taken in by sympathetic people in Spotsylvania and Orange Counties, or they camped out in the open air in the woods, where they endured days and nights of freezing weather until the danger passed and they could return to Fredericksburg. At any rate, as residents fled in droves, and as Robert E. Lee learned more about Burnside's difficulties regarding pontoons, the Confederate commander reconsidered his pledge not to use Fredericksburg for military purposes. And so, over the next few weeks, rebel troops went down into the town and secretly fortified it. The Confederates sent down into Fredericksburg were a Mississippi brigade of 1,600 soldiers commanded by Brigadier General William Barksdale. Part of Lafayette McClaw's division in Longstreet's Corps, Barksdale's men built a strong line of defenses in the houses and other buildings along the town's edge, nearest to the shoreline. Working primarily at night, the rebels quietly dug rifle pits, with zigzag trenches connecting them to holes chopped in cellar walls, enabling the men to maintain concealment as they moved from one building to another. On December 10th, Barksdale's men reported an unusual amount of activity by the Yankees across the river. Federal officers had been observed examining the riverbanks. Union pickets, shooting the breeze as usual with their counterparts on the southern shore, revealed that the Army of the Potomac had been told to prepare three days' rations and had been issued 80 rounds of ammunition, 40 to fill their cartridge boxes, and 40 to put in their pockets. These were sure signs that fighting was just around the corner. Barksdale put his men on high alert. 41-year-old William Barksdale was a one-time fire-breathing newspaper editor, Mexican war officer of volunteer troops, Mississippi congressman, and passionate secessionist. Barksdale proved a brave and resourceful soldier whose stubborn aggressiveness here at Fredericksburg would perfectly suit Robert E. Lee's needs. Barksdale had two missions— one was to act as a tripwire to detect a federal crossing and sound the alert in a timely manner so that the rest of Longstreet's corps could prepare for battle. The second was to delay the enemy crossing as long as possible to give Lee time to bring in Stonewall Jackson's troops, who were spread out for miles up and down the Rappahannock. 
With the Yankees across the way definitely up to something, Barksdale established his headquarters on Princess Anne Street at the three-storied Market House, the town's commercial center. He stationed the 17th and 18th Mississippi along the riverbank from the upper part of town to a quarter mile below Deep Run, and he held the 13th and 21st Mississippi in reserve. And then, as a thick fog covered the river, and as the night of December 10th turned over to the morning of December 11th, William Barksdale waited. Our company, along with three others from our regiment, had been detailed to lay two pontoon bridges across the Rappahannock at this point. The material for the bridges had all been taken down the dug road to the little flat at the margin of the river. One bridge was built about halfway across the river, and the other one just begun. We were in the act of unloading a pontoon boat by sliding it off the hind end of a wagon that had been backed up close to the water. Captain Perkins was helping us and was pulling on a rope attached to the boat, and just as it slid off the wagon, the enemy opened a volley on us. Then the air was full of bees, and all was confusion for a little while. The firing continued, and men, horses, and mules fell killed or wounded. Daylight soon came, and so did the ambulance men with their stretchers, picking up the dead and wounded. There lay the captain. He had been instantly killed. I helped lay him on a stretcher, and they carried him back up the hill he had come down so full of life such a short time before, amid a roar of a hundred pieces of artillery that were now belching forth a shower of shot and shell over our heads on the city and the enemy beyond. Sergeant Thomas J. Owen, 50th New York Engineers, Engineer Brigade at last, near noon, Burnside, out of all patience with the, the delay, thought to crush out the sharpshooters with one tremendous blow. He already had about 170 guns in position, extending from Falmouth, above, to nearly two miles below Fredericksburg. He ordered that every gun within range should be turned upon the town and should throw 50 shells into it as fast as they could do it. Then, I think, was presented the most impressive exhibition of military force, by all odds, which I ever witnessed. The whole Federal Army had broken up their camps and moved out on the hills, ready to cross the river as soon as the bridges were completed. Over 100,000 infantry were visible. Then, in front, was the three-mile line of angry, blazing guns, firing through white clouds of smoke and almost shaking the earth with their roar. Over and in the town, the white winkings of the bursting shells reminded one of a countless swarm of fireflies. Several buildings were set on fire, and their black smoke rose in remarkably slender, straight and tall columns for 200 feet, perhaps, before they began to spread horizontally and unite in a great black canopy. And over the whole scene there hung, high in the air, above the rear of the Federal lines, two immense black balloons, like two great spirits of the air, attendant on the coming struggle. I had come forward to Marie's Hill to watch events, and I sat there quietly and took it all in. 
and I could not help but laugh out heartily at times to catch in the roar of the federal guns the faint, drowned pop of a musket, which told that Barksdale's men were still in their rifle pits and still defiant. The contrast in noises the two parties were making was very ludicrous. Lieutenant Colonel E. Porter Alexander, Artillery Battalion Commander, First Corps. After Burnside set the wheels in motion on December 10th for his plan to cross the river the next day, Brigadier General Daniel Woodbury, commander of the Army's Volunteer Engineer Brigade, briefed his men on their assignments. He told him that Burnside had approved three different spots for bridges along a two-mile stretch of the river. Woodbury chose Major Ira Spaulding's 50th New York Engineers to build two bridges at the northern end of Fredericksburg. This would be the upper crossing. Another contingent of the 50th New York would construct a third span at the lower end of the town. This would be the middle crossing. Major James Magruder's 15th New York engineers would build a bridge one mile south of the city below Deep Run, and the U.S. Engineer Battalion under Lieutenant Charles Cross would construct another bridge right next to it. This would be the lower crossing. Woodbury estimated the bridges by the city would measure about 400 feet in length, while the two below Deep Run would be around 420 to 440 feet long. The engineers reconnoitered the crossing sites after the meeting broke up. Magruder and Cross approved of the spot chosen below the town for their bridges, but Spaulding and his officers were appalled at their proposed crossing sites in front of Fredericksburg. A captain remarked that, quote, For us to attempt to lay a pontoon bridge right in their very faces seemed like madness. On the night of December 10th, the engineer detachment started out from their camps, rumbling toward the river with the pontoon boats loaded on wagons and additional support vehicles laden with lumber, tools, and forges. At the upper crossing site, Captains Wesley Brainerd and George Ford of the 50th New York would supervise the work. The moon set at 1 a.m., plunging the landscape into complete darkness and giving the engineers their best chance to work on the river undetected. In the darkness, the men stealthily, or as stealthily as they could, unloaded the pontoons and dragged them down to the water's edge. The engineers then dashed up and down the hill behind the riverbank until they had transferred all of their equipment to the crossing site. The men complained about the bitter chill, but the dramatic drop in temperature had blanketed the river valley in a dense fog which would help conceal the bridge building. When all was ready, the engineers gathered in the darkness and bone-chilling fog at the river's edge started to shove pontoons into the water. The temperature had fallen to the mid-twenties, and it was cold enough that a skim of ice had formed along the river bank, and now it cracked underfoot as the men pushed the first pontoons into the water. At each spot where a bridge would be built, the engineer detachments were divided into eight sections, with each section of men having a very specific set of tasks to perform as their bridge took shape. One group of engineers would place a heavy timber abutment on the ground and secure it with stakes. 
Then a six-man team would maneuver a boat into place, turning it parallel to the shore and anchoring it in position. At this point, several balks, floor timbers measuring 25 feet long and a little over four inches wide, would be laid over the first boat, lashed into place, and then topped with chesses, boards approximately 14 feet long and 12 inches wide. After the chesses were laid across the top of the balks, forming the floor of the bridge, side rails were positioned to complete the job. Another pontoon would then be floated out approximately 13 feet from the first, and the process continued until the bridge was secured to an abutment on the opposite shore. While the engineers working on the bridges below Deep Run, south of town, encountered only light resistance, all hell broke loose in Fredericksburg itself. The detachments working at the upper and middle crossings had started work about 3 a.m. Two hours later, with one of the upper bridges and the middle bridge about two-thirds complete and the other upper bridge about a quarter finished, Barksdale's Confederate infantry suddenly began popping away at the engineers. Barksdale had confirmed the Yankee crossing for Lafayette McClaws sometime after 4.30, and at 5 o'clock, McClaws ordered his artillery to fire two guns, which was the signal for Lee's army to concentrate at Fredericksburg. It was 10 minutes after that signal that Barksdale's infantrymen opened fire on the Federal engineers, who were dimly visible out on the water. Captain Wesley Brainerd, commanding one detachment of the 50th New York Engineers at the Upper Crossing, had waited for this inevitable moment. At ten minutes after five, a Confederate officer could be clearly heard to give the order to fire, and the riverfront exploded as the Mississippians threw a deadly volley at the horribly exposed Yankee Engineers. Captain Augustus Perkins died almost instantly as related in that quote I read a few moments ago. Brainerd later recalled how, quote, The bullets of the enemy rained upon my bridge. They went whizzing and spitting by and around me, pattering on the bridge, splashing in the water, and thugging through the boats. Everyone started for the shore end of the bridge. Some fell into the boats, dead. Some fell into the stream, and some onto the bridge, dead. In a few moments, all of us were off the bridge, all except the dead. Four times the engineers ventured back out onto the river to attempt to complete the bridges, but each time they came scampering back. By 10 a.m., the New Yorkers had suffered 50 casualties. Supporting Federal infantry grumbled that the faint-hearted engineers retreated too quickly, but they soon had to eat their words. General Woodbury led 40 volunteers from the 8th Connecticut out onto one of the bridges, but after Confederate musketry felled 20 or so, the rest beat a hasty retreat. Burnside's plan for a swift and efficient crossing ground to a bloody and dismaying halt. Barksdale was reinforced by some men from the 8th Florida, and after the sun rose, he moved up most of his reserve, the 13th Mississippi, and half of the 21st Mississippi. The upper and middle crossing sites and their half-completed bridges became death traps for the Federals. 
The Confederates, protected in their rifle pits and the fortified buildings along the shoreline, blazed away at the Yankee engineers each time they ventured forth, and also peppered away at the supporting Federal infantry on the opposite shore. Meanwhile, below Fredericksburg, at the lower crossing, where Confederate opposition hadn't amounted to much, the two bridges there had been completed by 11 a.m. and were ready for Franklin's Grand Division. Burnside, however, refused to let Franklin advance until the bridges at the upper and middle crossings could be finished, and so the rebels in Fredericksburg continued to frustrate the Union commander's plans. By 12.30, Burnside decided an artillery barrage on the town was his only recourse to break the stalemate. His capable artillery commander, Brigadier General Henry Hunt, had nearly 150 guns well-positioned on Stafford Heights, overlooking Fredericksburg. A few batteries had already been firing, attempting to suppress the rebel musketry that had halted work at the upper and middle crossings. But now Burnside directed Hunt to unleash the full fury of the Union gun line on Fredericksburg to batter the Confederates in the town into submission. The bombardment lasted for roughly two hours. One northern war consp- correspondent wrote of how, quote, The earth shook beneath the terrible explosions of the shells, which went howling over the river, crashing into houses, battering down walls, splintering doors, ripping up floors. Union nurse Clara Barton watched in horror from the Army of the Potomac's headquarters on Stafford Heights. She saw, quote, Roofs collapse, walls and chimneys cave in, Buildings blow apart, timbers and bricks explode through the air, and houses burst into flame. For the first time, an American town itself and not an army was the target of bombardment by the U.S. military. Most of Fredericksburg's residents had already fled by December 11th, but those few who had stayed in their homes bolted for their cellars as fast as they could. Nevertheless, four civilians were reported killed during the ferocious cannonading. Despite the obvious violence of the shelling, what Burnside and Hunt soon discovered is a reality many military leaders have learned since then, and that is that such intensive bombardments often don't work. Although the houses and other buildings along the shoreline in which Barksdale's rebels were hidden had been destroyed, the cellars, rifle pits, and trenches remained largely intact and only a few of the Confederate soldiers had been wounded. After all was said and done, the relentless shelling had made it no easier for the Federals to finish their bridges. At one point, Robert E. Lee sent a courier to find out if Barksdale and his Mississippians were all right. Barksdale replied, Tell General Lee that if he wants a bridge full of dead Yankees, I can furnish him with one. When the bombardment stopped about 2.30 that afternoon, the Federal engineers ventured out again, cautiously optimistic the shelling had succeeded. But Barksdale's rebels opened fire immediately, killing and wounding some engineers while the others scrambled back to safety once again. 
Ambrose Burnside seethed with anger and frustration that a few enemy sharpshooters had been holding up his plans for hours. About what happened next, Francis O'Reilly, in his book, The Fredericksburg Campaign, Winter War on the Rappahannock, writes, quote, Burnside's chief of artillery, Henry Hunt, volunteered a novel idea to break the deadlock. He proposed something that Major Ira Spaulding of the 50th New York Engineers had advocated earlier that morning. The Major reckoned that they should ferry some infantry across the river and establish a protective bridgehead. Forcing the Confederates away from the river would allow the engineers to complete the bridges. O'Reilly's account continues, quote, Burnside leapt at the idea. Let us do that, he agreed. But then he wavered, refusing to take responsibility for ordering such a risky, unprecedented venture. Burnside finally conceded that if Hunt found volunteers to undertake the operation, he would allow it. Hunt headed for the nearest troops at hand. End quote. Such a river crossing under fire had never been tried before in the history of the U.S. military, but at the upper crossing, soldiers from the 7th Michigan and the 19th Massachusetts volunteered for the dangerous assignment. Likewise, some members of the 89th New York volunteered to cross and secure the middle crossing. As hasty arrangements for the assault were made, Hunt's artillery on Stafford Heights renewed its fire on the town. After 30 minutes, the Federal guns fell silent, and about 70 men from the 7th Michigan, led by Lieutenant Colonel Henry Baxter, sprang up, pushed three pontoon boats off from the shore, and jumped in. While a few reluctant members of the 50th New York Engineers rowed the boats, the Wolverines flattened themselves as best they could in the bottoms. Once they were out a hundred yards or so, the high bank on the Fredericksburg side acted to conceal them from the rebels, and so protected them from the Confederate musket fire for the rest of the crossing. Then, even before the boats grounded on the opposite shore, men had jumped out, splashed toward dry ground, and began clambering up to Water Street, to the left of the unfinished pontoon bridge. The Yankees had soon bagged over 30 prisoners. Barksdale's troops fell back to Caroline Street, where they stoutly resisted any further Federal advance. No longer able to prevent the enemy from crossing, Barksdale carefully redeployed his forces to contain the bridgeheads and control as many of the streets running up from the river as possible. Close behind the soldiers from the 7th Michigan came the men from the 19th Massachusetts. After landing, they deployed in houses along Water Street to the right of the uncompleted pontoon bridge. Meanwhile, some engineers rode volunteers from the 89th New York Infantry across the river in four pontoon boats to secure the middle crossing site at the lower end of town. And with that, with relatively few casualties suffered during the dramatic crossing itself, the Federals had their foothold on the far shore of the Rappahannock at Fredericksburg, and the engineers could set to work completing their bridges. 
The Federals had successfully accomplished the first river crossing under fire in American military history. But that was only half the story, because as boatloads of Yankees continued to cross the Rappahannock and as the engineers completed their bridges, the ensuing fight for the streets of the town was one of the few instances of urban warfare in the Civil War. The close quarters combat in Fredericksburg was particularly nasty and was primarily a savage contest between companies and regiments. But the story of the street fighting in Fredericksburg will have to wait until next time, since this seems like a good place to end this episode. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg by George C. Rabel. The story behind the title to Rabel's excellent book is that in July 1863, at the Battle of Gettysburg, Union troops who were repulsing the Confederate attack known as Pickett's Charge, who some six or seven months later were finally exacting some measure of revenge for the slaughter of their comrades in front of Maurice Heights at Fredericksburg, well, they called out, Fredericksburg, Fredericksburg, to taunt the defeated rebels during the desperate, climactic struggle there on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg. We highly recommend Rabel's book, and don't forget that you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. All right, this has been a long one, so we're going to wrap things up pretty quickly here, but we did want to give a shout-out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, John, Daniel, James, and Cal. And also thanks to Cal for his donation. And with that, we'll say thank you to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you join us again next time when we continue with the story of the Battle of Fredericksburg. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You know, now that we're finished with um, this section of the episode, I have to admit I'm kind of sad that uh, probably after this on the podcast, we're not ever going to say Skinker's Neck ever again. <laughs> That's true. That's true. S- Skinker's Neck <laughs> sounds like someplace in Arkansas. <laughs> hey, y'all want to go down to Skinker's Neck and crack open a couple cold ones and go skinny dipping? Oh. Rich. <laughs>